Good morning, church. Good morning, especially to our ministry partners this evening. I want to urge you to come back and hear our friend Myron Thomas preach from Innovation Church, Life Empowerment Center, Pastor Kino, his wife, representing Myron Well this morning. It's an exciting day every year in our church when we celebrate the privilege of being partners, having the dignity of inclusion by God and His mission in Memphis. And uh, we are very, very humbled to have these representatives here, and I urge you to visit each one of these tables uh, before you leave today. We have a short congregational meeting afterwards, which means we have a chance for our guests to leave first and uh, get down the hallway and get to their places, and then uh, you will not want to miss the annual joke. Our page number, and that is the... Uh, the uh, we do a joke at the congregational meeting. I didn't <clears throat> page 571, Isaiah 6 is our passage for study this morning. We've been studying the minor prophets. We'll return to that shortly. But uh, for today, for City Serve, we're focusing on this major prophet, on Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, we'll look at verses 1 through 13. Let me put it into context for you. Isaiah is writing about the same time as the minor prophets were, about 800 years, 700 years before Christ. We know exactly the year he writes this passage because he says in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, that was 733 years before Christ. 733, King Uzziah died. He was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he was a pretty good king as kings go in Israel and Judah. He ruled for 50 years. He started out very well. He called the people of God back to faithfulness. He, he tore down the idols. He, he was a godly man. He did well, <clears throat> that is, for the first three quarters of his life. The last quarter of his life, he did not finish well, as can be the case for many of us. The last quarter of his life, he got to thinking, you know, I've probably gotten here by my own wisdom, by my own good planning, by my own strength. I better take an, uh, an assessment of my military strength to make sure that we're still strong. God said, enough, Uzziah, I've brought you here. God afflicted him with leprosy. Now, it's always for the sake of driving somebody to repentance, Uzziah didn't repent as evidenced by the fact that he kept his leprosy till he died. It's a sad finish, but uh, overall, Uzziah was a strong leader, and he died. Political disarray, in other words. There's also the threat of a superpower. Assyria's on the move. It's turned on, on uh, Israel. They'll soon carry them away into captivity, wipe them off the face of the earth, and then they'll turn their, their attention perhaps to Judah. Judah had been fairly strong, their economy fairly stable, their political situation better than, than Israel's. They were in a pretty good spot, but now everything is in question uh, people aren't going to church. They didn't need to go to church. They thought that they were doing okay. They were apathetic toward their neighbor. They didn't need to share with anyone. And then one day, 
Isaiah's equivalent of a Brian Lewis came to Isaiah and said, we've got Jerusalem serve coming up. We need you to motivate the people to serve the Lord. Serve them in their city where they are. Isaiah said, I don't know what I'm going to say. What do you say? How do you motivate people in a culture like this? How do you motivate people who are comfortable, who are apathetic, who, who are afraid of, uh, of uh, everything, uh, of, of the uh, geopolitical situation, of, and uh, put their trust in political leaders? How do you motivate a people like that? Isaiah found the answer by going into the temple. That's where we pick up in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their, their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I said, how long, O Lord? He said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God and forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, like Isaiah's, to see you high and lifted up, conquer our hearts with the beauty, the wonder of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> You know this phenomenon, don't you, that if somebody who has done something for you when you were most undeserving, if that person shows up in your presence, 
person who has, has ministered to you in an unbelievably gracious way and uh, it made a difference in your life and then they show up, they visit you. It has a way of motivating you, doesn't it? It has a way of changing a strained relationship into a renewed relationship. I had that experience some time ago. When I was working on the degree, last degree in Philadelphia, the man who was the world-renowned expert in my area of reformed preaching and worship, the man who was the reform, was the renowned, the world-renowned expert on that topic, his name was Hughes Oliphant Old. And a friend of mine knew what I was working on. He was a pastor in Philadelphia, and he said, when you come to Philadelphia, that man, Dr. Old, is worshiping in my congregation. When you come here, I'll introduce you. I said, that would be a dream come true, just to shake his hand, just to see him, just to tell him how much I've appreciated all of his books, the impact they've made on me and on the church of Jesus Christ and so forth. So he introduced me, and it was enough to be introduced to him, but but uh, Hughes Oliphant, oh, Dr. Old and his wife said, why don't you come with us to lunch after the worship service? They took me to lunch. And then they took me to their home for the whole afternoon. For the whole afternoon, we talked about all of these nerdy things. And uh, then we got back in the car and we, he took me back to evening church and dropped his wife off for choir. And then we went uh, to uh, bookbinders for dinner. And he spent the rest of the evening with me. And then he started corresponding with me. And then he told me, I don't want you to call me Dr. Old anymore. I want you to call me by my nickname, Scotty, Scotty Old. And he kept up with me and he encouraged me until I finished my project. Eventually, we, we, I made a transition in 2005 over to Augusta. And he, uh, I didn't know that he had moved from Princeton to, to uh, South Carolina. And so in 2005, I was at this new church, and the new church said, you know, we got this relationship with a seminary in South Carolina, and it's, it's, uh, it's kind of gone sour. We'd like to transition our relationship to the seminary that's your alma mater, and so uh, we need you to tell that seminary that we're going to discontinue our relationship. Welcome to the job. So I called the president. The president said, I'm going to, I need to come down and visit you and talk to you about it. Okay, come on down. And he came down and the, 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 uh, the administrator buzzed in and said, your appointment is here. I opened the door and who is standing there? Yes, the president of this seminary in South Carolina. And then Scotty and Mary Old. My first word to the president was, you dirty rat. And then I dissolved into tears. My dear, dear friends. Needless to say, we continued the relationship. It changed everything. When someone who has loved you in a remarkable, uh, unnecessary, undeserved way, when they show up, it makes a difference. That's what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah was transformed by Jesus showing up. I'm not reading that into the text. Jesus tells us himself in John chapter 12, verse 41. That story, he says, in Isaiah 6, that was about me. I visited the temple. John 12, 41. 
Jesus showed up in Isaiah's life. It radically transformed even this prophet and motivated him to pursue shalom for his city, to preach the good news, even though it would be a hard job. That's what I'm calling you to, what the Spirit is calling you to on this City Serve Sunday. Jesus has shown up. Jesus has visited you if you are a believer. Even if you're not a believer, you've stumbled into a worship service and Jesus has met you. Jesus has shown up. He's visited. None of us has deserved it. And the very least we can do is to say, here am I, send me. Walk down that hallway and say, show me. Now, how do we do that? How do we respond to Jesus showing up in all of the glory of His grace? We do it by our mission. The mission at 2PC Memphis of retelling the gospel and reimagining the church and the city and repairing what is broken. I want to switch the order of of the second and third, I want to say that the way we respond to Jesus' visit to us is by retelling the gospel and repairing what is broken and then reimagining the church and the city. Let me show you how it comes out in this text. Retelling the gospel begins with being, having the gospel retold to you every week. You've already made a good first step. You're here. In this worship service, we retell the gospel every week, and that's what Isaiah is experiencing. We've observed it already in our study of Jonah. Jonah, when he's sinking beneath the waves, he imagines the temple, and because he has that muscle memory of going to church every, every Sabbath day, it's cut like the pattern of that worship service is cut into him deeply like grooves. It's cut there so that his his faith cart runs in it by default. And that, that Old Testament service is the one we imitate following the New Testament pattern, which is to rehearse, to replay, to reenact the gospel every week. Not just by the prayers we pray and the songs we sing and the sermon we preach, but the very structure of the service reenacts worship. We were called to worship. We responded with praise. When we looked at Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and his holiness displayed in his word in Philippians 2, we were humbled and we confessed our sins. And then we heard pardoning grace, just like when we were saved. And hearing that pardoning grace, we respond in giving. And we say, send us out. And now we're being equipped to be sent out. And we will sing in thanksgiving. And then the benediction will send us forth with God's blessing. Every week we do it in different ways. But every week it's the same pattern. It's a reenactment of the gospel. A recapitulation of the gospel. It's retelling the gospel. Isaiah comes into that, into that temple as he's done hundreds and hundreds of times before. But this Lord's Day, this, this uh, Sabbath day, something was different. Jesus had visited worship service every time, but this time his eyes of faith were especially open because he was in a place of deep need. 
He looked around him at his culture, at his situation, at his church, at other Christians, at his city, and he said, I'm in despair. It's a great place to be for the Lord to speak to you. And he saw in the year that King Uzziah died, what am I going to do without my king on the throne? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord who is always seated on the temple, seated on the throne, high and above the temple. And he was revealed as holy. That's a tough word to figure out in the Bible. Holy. You know, and and it wasn't a, a word that was peculiar to believers. It was a word used to describe gods. And, and it, was, it was descriptive of their particular character. And the particular character of a god was imitated by those who worshipped that god. So if the, those who worshipped Baal, his distinguishing character was that he was a pervert. And the result was that those who worshipped him were taken up with, consumed with their sexual perversion. The Canaanite gods had a thirst and a lust for violence. And, and so those who worshipped them became bloodthirsty and cruel warriors. God says to Isaiah, I am holy, but I am holy, holy, holy. I am the standard of holiness. I am the standard of a unique character. I am God alone. And that means, for one, I am a superior being. We get that in the seating on the throne. We get that when the, when the angels are covering their faces and they're covering themselves and they're, and they're flying around obeying the Lord. He is superior to all other beings. We get that in the smoke, which, uh, which is reminding or a reminder of, of the way the Word of God came in, in Exodus chapter 19 on the, on the, on, on the Mount Sinai. I am the one who alone has the authority to tell you what to do. We get it in that vocabulary, that thrice holy exclamation. We get it in the song. The whole earth is full of my glory. Everywhere you turn, you see a testimony to me, not to anyone else. And of course, it's a, it's a description of God's ethical superiority, that He is pure, and before Him no sinful person can stand to be uncovered. The gospel was retold to Isaiah, and retelling the gospel always starts with the person of God. To worship means that we come into a sanctuary or wherever we're worshiping and we don't do like this and say, I'm going to see if this worship measures up to my standards. It is to come into this place and say, oh Lord, you alone are God. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. 
But that's not where it ends. Just, just retelling Isaiah what is true about God and what is true about him is not what moves Isaiah to this incredible response, this, un, uh, this, uh, this unrestricted response, here I am, send me. There's another step. It is that Isaiah is repaired. For Isaiah to become a repairer means that he first has to be repaired. It's the same for you and me. Verse 8, here's his response. Whom shall I send who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. Where did that come from? It starts up earlier in verse 5. Woe is me, I am lost. Woe is me, I am lost. It starts with to be repaired starts with deconstruction. Now, I know it's the cool thing to talk about these days of deconstructing your faith. But the shoe is on the wrong foot. It starts with God deconstructing you and me. Untangling us. Reminding us, first of all, I am God, you are not But Isaiah saw something more than just the distinction in beings. Isaiah, if Isaiah were just afraid of the bigness of God, or if he were just in dread of the severity of God's wrath, he would have said something more. He would have shriveled in fear. He would have tried to run. He would have, uh, he would have shaken with terror, as we see in so many people. But instead, Isaiah prays. Woe is me. It's just like the woes he's been preaching to the, his fellow Judahites in, in chapters 2 and 5. Woe is me. I am. I am corrupt in my heart, which is manifested in my lips. I am just like the people to whom I'm preaching. I'm just as big a hypocrite. They are, they, uh, they, they say one thing with their lips, they believe another thing in their heart. They say one thing with their lips, they do another thing with their actions. And I'm no better. I am just like them. And the implication is, God have mercy on me. Where would that have come from? When he says, woe is me, I am ruined. It's a prayer for mercy. Here's where he got it. He got it because he saw God. To see God is to see his mercy. We know that well here, don't we? Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when Moses says, show me your glory, show me who you are in your essence. And God says, even while these people are acting like animals down in the valley, God says, here's who I am in my essence. I am the Lord, the Lord. Yes, I am the sovereign king, but I am slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy and showing kindness, loving kindness to thousands of generations and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. I don't sweep sin under the rugs. I, I deal with it. I, I will punish it as long as people remain unrepentant up into the second and third generation. But my grace so far overwhelms that. I show loving kindness to a thousand generations. Isaiah saw that God, and he said, woe is me. I need mercy. I am ruined. I am lost. I am going to hell is the way Isaiah felt and what he said. 
I don't need just some fresh inspiration, a little touch up. I need deconstruction and rebuilding. And it has to start with your mercy. And so what happens? The angel comes with a coal from beneath the altar. What altar? You can imagine scholars love to debate which altar it was. Altar of incense can't be that. There aren't any coals with an altar of incense. It has to be the altar of sacrifice. And you say, wow, I'm going to be hesitant to pray. Woe is me because I don't want my lips seared like that. We see it as punishment. That's not what Isaiah is describing. He's describing an angel who goes beneath the altar of sacrifice where sacrifices, blood sacrifices have been offered and there is blood and gore and putrefaction soaking those coals. And those blood-soaked coals, it's one of those blood-soaked coals that the angel takes and touches Isaiah's lips, the symbol of his heart, because he has to be not just cleansed, he has to be atoned for. That's the verb used. I have atoned for you. I've made a substitute for you. I've forgiven your sins and made you go from being lost to being found because I've substituted my son, the blood of my son. Jesus is saying this to Isaiah. How else did Isaiah know that he could appeal to God for mercy? It's because of the way God visited the temple. Now, I know we have in this, in our Bible here, that the train of his robe filled the temple. The problem is that ancient Near Eastern kings did not have trains on their robes. They had a hymn, but they didn't have a robe, a train. That is a long piece of cloth following like a bride. Ancient Near Eastern kings didn't have that. So it's, it's the hymn of God's robe, the hymn of Jesus' robe was filling the temple. The hymn not so much of a, just a king, but the hymn of a priest. The hymn that that dear woman said in the Gospels who had a who had a bleed, a bleeding disorder. If I can just touch the what? The hem of his garment, I will be healed. You know how we sing about it in our, one of our favorite hymns, Heal Us, Emmanuel. She too, who touched ye in the press and healing virtue stole, was answered, daughter, go in peace. Thy faith has made thee whole. Like her with hopes and fears, we come to touch thee if we may. Oh, save us, not despairing. Send us not despairing home. Send none unhealed away. Isaiah saw the hem of Jesus' garments and he said, I need to be, I need not only to be atoned for so that I don't suffer your judicial wrath, I need to be healed so that my lips become healing instruments rather than destructive, hypocritical, hypocritical ones. Please, Lord, retool me, repair me. 
that I might be an agent of reimagining the church and the city. What does it mean when we say reimagine the church and the city? We mean by that, what does the Scripture say the church and the city are supposed to be? We're not making it up in our own minds. We look at the Bible and we dream in God and say, what is your, what is your imagine? What, is, what are you envisioning for what the church and the city are going to be? And we want to get in step with you and step toward realizing that same vision. So we do it for the church. Lord, what is the church supposed to be? It's supposed to be like it is in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. They were worshiping. They divided themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's discipleship. They, they were uh, having all things in common. There were no poor among them. They were doing mercy ministry. They were breaking bread with one another in one another's homes. That's fellowship. And the, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. That's evangelism. That's what we're trying to do. Reimagine the church as Jesus imagines it. Not just in this building, going out into our neighborhoods and saying, this neighborhood is not just my neighborhood. These streets are not just my streets. They are your streets. They are your neighborhoods. And I want Jesus to be known among all of my neighbors. And then it's reimagining the city. And God gives us lots and lots of pictures of the city. But I love the one in Zechariah chapter 8. When, when uh, the prophet says, I, I saw that uh, Jerusalem had become known as, was known, was renamed the faithful city. And then I saw that, that uh, there were old men and old women and because they were ripe in old age, they were leaning on their canes. And around them were playing children, boys and girls, in the streets. Safely, that is. It was a faithful city. It had boys and girls playing in the streets. And, and the elder saints could sit outside without fear. And the Lord was the light of that place. That's what we dream for Memphis. And I can tell you I've seen it. Not long ago, I was driving through Augusta, Georgia. It's a little city. It's, it's just a fragment the size of, of Memphis. But uh, the faithful people there claimed that that vision from Zechariah 8, and I pulled off, the, off the, 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 high, the highway ramp and drove through the city, a place that was the most, one of the most dangerous sections, one of the most dangerous zip codes in the state of Georgia. No one would dare go outside. You certainly wouldn't let your children go outside. You wouldn't let old people go outside. There was nothing there but drugs and crime and violence, and I drove through that section of town, and I saw something different. I saw Christ Community Health Center there. Thank you for sending them to us. I saw Heritage Academy, a, 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 a school for that, for that city, children playing outside. I saw old people sitting on their front 
porches. I saw mothers pushing strollers with their children in it. I saw black and white, all kinds of people celebrating a section of the city that had become more faithful because of the love of God in Jesus' people. And we can go to various places around this city and see the same, and we pray for that comprehensively to be known in Memphis. We just say, that's not the way this passage ends. That's a, it's a much harder passage than that. He, he's supposed to tell them that they can't be saved, that they're supposed to be hardened, and, and the city is going to be torn down. Ah, but now you do understand it because you saw what happened to Isaiah. When he was deconstructed of himself, he was in a place to be rebuilt and to be reimagined by God as one who could be a teller of the gospel and a repairer of broken places. This is what we say to our city. This is what we say to one another around us. The gospel comes and deconstructs you. It peels away from you. It tears away from you. All those things that are killing you, that are strangling you, that are dehumanizing you. And then what does it do? It builds you from the stump. A green shoot of new life. This is, of course, a prediction of the coming of Jesus, but it's of us too. You see the very end, verse 13? The holy seed. The same word used of God is the word that is applied to the people of God when they are torn away from their idols and they humble themselves and say, Lord Jesus, I have no righteousness of my own, nothing by which to commend myself to you. I am lost. I am ruined. I'm a hypocrite like everybody else. Conquer me with the blood of your atoning grace. Unite me to yourself so that I can become green and flourish and thrive like this and be one who retells the gospel and repairs places according to your imagination as revealed in your word. Can you do that? Is that for just anybody? Let me give you this encouraging example. I started preaching in this the previous church. I started just like I did here with Exodus 34, 6, and 7 to say this essential mercy of God will set the trajectory for the whole rest of the, the ministry and preaching. It's what we are supposed to be. And then like here, I started preaching through Acts and and we talked a lot about the Holy Spirit and, and putting yourself in the place of, of being used by the Spirit. If the Spirit indwells you and unites you to Christ, then it makes sense that, it, that you can step into any unknown situation, uncomfortable situation, and it's the Holy Spirit who's going to work. So just step into those places and watch God work. Well, in response to one of those messages, this, this tiny little older lady come, came up to me and she said, uh, I want to step into the place of, with the Holy Spirit, I want to step into a hard place and watch him work. And I, she said, where can I do that? And I said, well, we always need nursery workers. That's hard service right off the bat. She said, uh, I, I work in the nursery. I, I want something harder. Well, I mentioned some other things. She was already doing those things. 
I said, well, I was exasperated. I said, well, there's always prison ministry. She said, that sounds perfect. I said, oh, now, now, wait, wait, now wait a minute. I was just kind of joking, you know. You, you may be taking my sermons a little more literally than I intend for you. Um, you know, I mean, you have to appreciate this is a, a tiny little lady. She's been, she's lived a sheltered life. She hadn't, she hadn't moved much outside of her country club friends and outside of her social circles. And she's a professional artist and made a lot of money with that artist and art art and to, to go to a prison I just thought that might be too much of a she said I'm going to prison I said okay I called the chaplain and worked it out she visited that Sunday she never quit visiting and she went every Sunday into women's prison and she took her hymn book and she sang the hymns that we sang that morning she took a Bible and she and she taught the sermon that she had heard that morning and she started bringing other people with her. And then she came back and she said, I've got that prison ministry going. Now what next? <laughs> I said, I mean, that, isn't that enough? No, she said, I think I'm going to, I want to go to an unreached people group. Like a former communist country. So, okay, you're in the Lord's hands. She went with, started going on medical mission trips. She didn't have any medical expertise. She would sit outside and she would just pray. And then she noticed that there were these, that, that, that there were women who were being trafficked. And so she started going into the, 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 the houses of prostitution. She'd sit in the lobby and she would just wait for the women to come. And she'd say, Lord, uh, please bring somebody here that I can tell about Jesus. And she did it. Now, Yes, I'm bragging on her, but I, I'm, I, I'm also confessing my little faith. It's just the way God loves to work. It's, it's just for you to take the first step. Just, just put yourself in the way and say, Lord, I've seen your grace and your mercy, and the least I could do is to say, send me somewhere, use me in some way. Just, just in my city, I'll start here first. And so here I am. I don't know anything about this that I'm doing, but I know I go with the Holy Spirit. I'm united to Christ. I'm this little green shoot united to you. Do wonderful things that will bring glory to your name through me. That's where I ask you to start today. After you leave here, you've started in the right place. You've seen the Lord high and lifted up. You've been reminded of how you've been saved. Now go this way when it's the right time. And don't go out the last door until you've just signed up to get just information. And all the while saying, here am I, send me. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, here is the preacher who also must say every week and every day, woe is me. I am lost unless you continually apply your grace and mercy to me. And so here we are, pastor and people, saying to you, we've seen you afresh. We thank you for your mercies to us in Christ Jesus, infinitely undeserved. And now we yield ourselves to you, even with fear and trepidation, maybe some anxiety. We say to you, Lord, it's the least I can do to say thank you to you by just asking 
to send me. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.